Welcome to Growing E-Commerce. I'm your host, Mike Ryan of Smarter E-Commerce. Today, we're joined by Kirk Williams from Zato Marketing. Kirk is one of the brightest minds in Google Ads for e-commerce, and he's been starting conversations and leading the way in that space for years. Actually, I'm not shy about this. Kirk has been a professional hero of mine, and it's amazing to now call him a friend and have him on this show. We talk about scaled growth, when it's healthy, when it's not, before getting into Google's platform-side automation strategy, which makes this an interesting counter-perspective to my recent episode with Janine Marvin. A great thing about Kirk is that he's critical of what Google does, but also he's willing to learn and have his mind changed. He's undogmatic. We also talk about walled gardens, privacy and regulation, and more. All right, let's get into it. So, Kirk, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Um, would you get us started with a quick intro? What are your skills? What themes interest you, Kirk? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll try not to take up the whole time with uh, with what skills and themes interest me, at least the themes part. Um, so I'm, I'm Kirk Williams. I own a, a micro agency, I like to call it, uh, PPC micro agency Zato. And we just focus on Google ads and Microsoft ads. And then we have kind of a specialized focus in e-commerce, uh, sp- specifically Google shopping. So that's probably, you know, the number one skill slash theme would be for me would be like Google shopping stuff. So um, got into PPC a good, uh, good, I think 11, 12 years ago and jumped into Google shopping pretty quickly after that, especially when it first started and it was free. Um, there were there were kind of some different variations that Google Shopping went through for anyone listening who kind of remembers those like Google Product Base, Frugal, all that stuff, right? So I've, I've ridden the wave of that through through the time. And 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 I like to kind of joke, this is this is kind of a positive thing, but it also can be a negative thing. Like the stuff that I've forgotten about Google Merchant Center is probably, you know, more than a lot of people just get into the space, which is fine. But sometimes that actually confuses me or, or can even make, you know, for those of us who've been doing, especially like Google ads a long time when they change things up all the time, right? Can actually make us look kind of dumb because <laughs> we'll be like, oh yeah, this is how you do that. And then, and then the client goes and checks out. They're like, that's not how you do it. I'm like, okay, well, that's how you did it for like seven years. And I guess now they've changed it. Thanks, Google. So, um, yeah, so I'd say that's probably a specialized theme. And then, and then I've, I've, I've really gotten lately into, um, just kind of pondering, especially like a service-based agency ownership and kind of thinking through some stuff like that, wrote a little book with some of those thoughts called stop the scale. Um, yeah, which, you know, we might, we might go into that a little bit, but, uh, but those are probably still the two main things that I'm interested in right now. Um, aside from the normal Google stuff, privacy automation, all that stuff as well. So. Well, definitely. I think we'll have time to get into themes of privacy and automation later on too. And you dropped kind of like, you mentioned this, this, um, most recent book that you wrote, but you also dropped a keyword there, pondering, which, um, (laughs) another, another book you wrote before that called PPC ponderings and, um, or ponderings of a PPC professional rather you've got podcast with the title PPC ponderings. So definitely check that stuff out. Um, and I would say you are a ponderer in my, uh, experience of, you know, reading your stuff <laughs> and, uh, something I definitely appreciate about you. So I'd also like to get to that topic, you know, about this micro agency and I'm glad you call it a micro agency and not a, like a boutique agency. Cause that feels too, <laughs> maybe. But, uh, um, but I think it's a great, it's a great, uh, idea. But could you run us through your career quickly? Um, so that's what you're doing today. What have you done before? And and I'd also love if you care to comment about. I'd love to hear about your your educational background too, because if I'm not mistaken, you studied ministry, and um, I'd love to hear how if and how that colors your day to day. I kind of have the feeling that PPC is like a vocation for you. It feels somehow like there's a special energy there that you bring to it. Can you tell us about um, your career today? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I got into PPC while I was yeah studying for my master's of theology down in in Louisville Kentucky um, and basically I got down there and I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna do school and be all in on this and I was like oh you know someone's got to pay for this right you're like oh this takes money um, and uh, and so basically just kind of was working any jo- any jobs I could find I mean I was working um, overnight like doing back stock at at a Target like one of the mm-hmm. Target corporations here and was just tired. Um, we didn't have kids at the time, but, 
I would, I would work all night. I'd catch a couple hours of sleep, wake up kind of, we joke, I'd like high five my way. She, my wife, as she headed to work and then I'd go to school, um, you know, try to sit and think in master's levels classes and then get a couple hours of sleep and, 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 and like we'd high five on the way as she got off work and I'd be going, you know, I'd be just waking up to head, head to work. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably going to die if I continue this schedule. So at that point I was, I was like, I will do basically whatever the first decent full-time job that comes around is. Right. And, uh, and yeah, so marketing showed up at my doorstep. Um, and I had, I had never done marketing or even really thought about marketing. Um, and again, it was just one of those like, well, if this prevents me from dying at an early age of exhaustion, then I'll do it. And it was just one of those things where I just kind of loved it. You know, it just kind of clicked. Um, so I started at this real small e-commerce company and uh, I would do uh, like the, the content stuff. And I'm uh, by content, that is a very generous word because what I mean is we would take like these service industry catalogs and I'd literally like have that up on my desk propped up and I'd be typing exactly word for word what that catalog said onto our product pages, right? Um, and And it was, I think I did that for about a year or so. And then they're like, hey, we'd like to try this thing called PPC. You know, I've never heard of that. Kirk, you want to give it a try? Sure. You know, I, I'm up for it. And like, that's literally how I got started and started realizing I enjoyed that. Eventually started getting a couple of clients on the side where I'm like, hey, I know how to do this. I should get a couple of clients on the side, you know, side industry. Um, I don't even think at that time I knew that that was a side hustle was a thing, right? That's just, just, just what you did. And eventually like turn that into um, kind of a consulting thing and eventually quit my job at the e-commerce uh, place and then started doing this full time. And that eventually then morphed into little agency Zato. So, I mean, that was a good like 10 years ago. So that that's basically all I've done. And I like to joke a lot that um, I just don't have a background in business. Um, I didn't, I didn't take businesses and business classes in college and man, I wish I would have had just some elements of that. Right just some sort of foundation. So because of that, I think there's probably some positive things that I've, I've, I have with that because there might be some traps that I avoid that like everyone does. Cause that's what you do in the industry. And sometimes it takes an outsider to do that. But a lot of times what that means is like, I'm kind of like making beginner college 101 mistakes in, in my business because I, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so that's cool. been an interesting thing over the last 10 years is just kind of figuring out what I'm doing. And that's part of my story as well. And that's fine. I've learned to kind of own that. So yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, sometimes there can be advantage of kind of being a stranger in a strange land. And you might, uh, there might be things that this naivety empowers you to, you know, take on that would be otherwise you'd be saying, nah, that's too crazy, but maybe you can pull it off. Um, (laughs) And I can totally relate. I was pursuing a master's and working a side job um in retail and yeah that was back i don't know what what age you are what time that was um but that was like you know 2009 right in the recession and everything yeah yeah pretty pretty much right after that i think um, i think mine was like 10 2010 Mm -hmm. is i think when i started so yeah yeah (laughs) um well thanks for sharing that that background for us um so about this you know about zato and about this um micro agency and the book you wrote recently stop the scale. So uh, this is a question I usually, it's one of my favorite questions to ask a lot of guests is how do you define healthy growth or what does unhealthy growth look like to you? Um, And I think that that's sort of at the theme or a central theme of of your latest book. I haven't read your newest one, Um, but tell us what that book is about. Basically, what do you, what do you see going on in growth culture today? How does that relate to you as a, as an agency? Does it relate to your clients in e-commerce too? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me kind of, I'll start, I'll kind of define, you know, healthy growth, that sort of thing. And then we can take that however we want. Um, Let me, let me start by noting like a a huge caveat, especially knowing your audience. There's probably a lot of e-com people listening, brand owners, that sort of thing, brand managers. So like my book, so stop the scale, building a digital, building a digital agency you actually like is the, is the title. Cause I like really long titles. Um, that is admittedly very much geared towards like a service-based mindset. And and that's not because I don't think there are probably some principles that go into all business ownership and that that's more just because, Hey, that's, that's kind of the the world I'm swimming in right now. Right. And so that's what I'm writing to. So, so I do want to note, like, 
I actually understand there are differences. There are different aspects. So like an e-commerce brand owner, there, there actually can be tangible benefits to scaling. Like you have better, you have better like um, shipping, you know, agreements, right? You have like better container prices. I've, I've heard times where, you know, if you have to buy a container, like you're not just going to leave it a third full, you might as well try to fill the thing. Right. Um, so there are, I think there are elements to, to growth and size that can be beneficial for an e-commerce that is a little bit different on service. So I'll note that. That being said, like the book overall, like I would say it presents this alternative path to agency ownership and it's focused on investing more, like investing primarily in service quality and, and like employee emotional health than the juxtaposition then on agency like revenue growth and employee number growth, employee count. And so like, I, I don't, and, and I don't think revenue growth and employee growth are in themselves problematic. I just, I just present them as like the result of what I think should be managing like a business well, especially a smaller agency rather than the primary goal. Because I think the difference between having growth, like revenue growth as your primary goal, as opposed to more of growth in like individual service quality, employee, employee emotional health, you know, whatever, that, that's probably going to mean different things for different people. Um, but, but I just think the devil's in the detail there, right? Because in my opinion, like the two most common results that I've witnessed as an outsider in the agency world, as I see agencies who obsess over scaling quickly, the, the, the two, um, the two results, if you will, uh, every time are employee burnout and like in, in, in lack of knowledge, I think. Um, and so you, you often see account managers get totally inundated as growth happens because I'll, oftentimes an agency owner is really good at sales or, or really moves forward quickly into a good sales organization. And what happens is then what they set out to do from the beginning, which was just provide a great service, like that, that is the first thing to go. Because you can't, like your account manager, if they're used to, like the, the service quality they can give on seven accounts as opposed to 30 accounts of the same size is just, those are two completely different things. Um, and then it often results in that employee being burned out as well. So basically just trying to provide this, this alternate path of, I don't even know if it's an alternate path. I think it's just like looking around at the, at the industry and being like, how did, how did we get here? where the vast majority of us are owning agencies that are never going to be really big. And like, and that's perfectly fine because we can do a great job with what we're doing, the size we're doing, our employees, our clients. So where did we get to the point where we, we were just kind of obsessed with that unicorn type growth m model, right? And obviously, I actually think even what I said, unicorn, like, I think that's part of where it came from. I think the tech world, the the context of everything has been all about that now for, for the last decade or so. And we are finally starting to really see that in a healthy way, in my opinion, as like as unhealthy. We're starting to see the documentaries on uh, uh, WeWork and and Theranos and all of those kind of come out and show like, oh, hey, look, if all if all we do is like obsess over rapid growth as quickly as possible, maybe that's a bad thing, right? So so this book is me, my effort at trying to kind of partake in that conversation well yeah that, i mean i think it all makes a ton of sense what you've said there and it, it does remind me of um i just think the last years we've been in this um long-running kind of booming market where things have been growing and vc capital has been flooding into all kinds of businesses and private equity uh, and there's you know there's just you everywhere you look there's all the the unicorns there's the tech startups there's uh, the, the whole crypto bubble, you know, you just, the stock market, you just feel surrounded by all this big growth. And yeah, and in services, it's not to say that services don't or can't scale or that people, people don't scale, kind of classic saying, but um, yeah, you see a lot of agencies just rolling out more agencies for the sake of getting bigger and bigger. And um, I think it makes a lot of sense what you said, whereas why not just operate a satisfying business that we can be proud of? And to your point about it being a little different for e-commerce managers or brand managers, um, yeah, product-based business, a different beast. Certainly, there are economies of scale, um, like you mentioned, with container prices and so on. But I think there's a, I think there's a lesson there too, where if you look at 
some of the de- de- like direct-to-consumer brands over the last uh, couple of years um, where it turned out that the emperor had no clothes and stuff like this <laughs> when they would go public and um, or that they weren't that they were maybe not that differentiated or things like this. Um, I, I think it is an important lesson uh, for, for all of us. We've been in a big growing kind of mindset the last years and in the future maybe we need to get into you know there's this idea of like the circular economy or something that's a little bit you know it doesn't have to be too radical but is is there another way forward here it's an interesting question mm-hmm. and, and i mean i think i think that like that i gave the caveats for the product-based businesses and for dc and that the i think there are some comparisons too though like at some point and I think this is where, again, where I'd look at someone like my my goal or motivation is, you know, am I getting into this primarily because I have this product that I, I actually think is is unique and different and here's a way to sell it and here's this audience and it's meeting, it's kind of fitting this, it's fitting this hole in the market, right? That's where a lot of people um, get into DDC as they, as they look and they, they build this product. Um, like I think of Patrick Cadu with like get supply razors where he just looked around. He's like, there's just not a really great, like single blade razor, right. That, uh, that does kind of like the old school razors and blah, 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 blah. And so he, he saw this, he saw this market and hopped in there, um, and kind of made a name for himself. And, and he built these fans and just him as an, you know, as an example, but there's a lot of people like that, right. Where, you, you look at people who are more focused on that. Um, and, and I just think that mindset, as opposed to someone who is maybe just kind of trying to grow just for the sake of growing the revenue. And, and I know I'm, I'm probably offending some people by this, actually. I also think this is probably going to be, uh, this will be a little bit of, a, of, of communicating to us, like a prophetic look, if you will. That's where I was looking for. Like a prophetic look, probably, at like how a business will do, especially if we head into some sort of more difficult thing, right? Because if your product, if you've been, managed, if you've been managing your business well, you have capital, you have fans, you have this, this niche, like you have a need that you are meeting, probably the likelihood, like you're, it's going to be tough if you enter a recession or some sort of difficult economic area. It will be tough, but the odds are probably, I would argue, more likely that you'll survive because you have those things working for you. Where again, like someone who's just obsessed with scaling for the sake of scaling and, and isn't really meeting those other things they're just far more, they're going to be far more sensitive to like an economic shift. Uh, in some ways, I would, I would argue because like they don't have as strong of a business model um, because of those things. So I do think some of that communicates now that, I, you know, now that I've offended half your audience, but I, I do think some of that transfers over. Um, and that's part of what I'm trying to, to think through is like, what are we doing with our businesses? Like, what is, what is our focus? Like, what is our goal? Because I think that's going to work its way into even the smallest part of how we manage. Like, how are we managing our employees? Um, are we trying to, in every way, just take as much advantage of them as possible? There's going to be some level of churn, all that stuff. Or is that part of our overall objective with like, here's what I'm trying to do in life. And here's how my business fits into that. And I want to have a great product or service. And I want to take care of those around me, my employees, my my customers. And, and I want to do all that well. That goal is very different and has very different ramifications into how I manage my business and grow my business than like, hey, I just want to make like a ton of money as quickly as possible, right? Those two, those two things are very, very different. So I'm yeah, advocating yeah, for the first. <laughs> Well, definitely. I don't. I don't. I don't think you've you've offended uh, any listeners of, of this podcast. I probably already weeded them out by now or something. <laughs> if if you yeah, if you had the words growth hacker in your podcast title, I'd probably be offended. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but um, well, this some of this reminds me. It's tying in a bit toward this this article that you wrote lately, where you were you were talking. So, so let's get this is getting down to a different level here. It's getting more tactical. Um, You were talking about like in Google ads where there's this trend to segment campaigns based on margin, for example. And you were, you were pushing back on that. And, you know, it reminds me of this because one of the things you mentioned there is that, that there are really good cases or reasons why you might want to optimize based on revenue, for example, or toward revenue growth because of the economies of scale that you might expect or, or whatnot, but could you talk us through that 
article a bit. Um, do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let me let yeah, let me let me talk through the article, give a couple of even even like since I've written it, some things maybe I've I've just thought through more, learned, or like there was some great comment, there's some great comments on it from others as well. So the article is basically overall me responding not to like very complex structures where someone is going in and they're taking aspects of margin and sales, um, like sales per product evidence and historical data and like combining into various structures in their shopping ads. My article was written more towards like these accounts where I hop into and I see like, hey, someone's gone through, they've gone through their 25,000 SKU product database. They've built four They've built four margin product margin um, groupings in a custom label, and then they've slapped those into four Google Smart Shopping campaigns, and they're off to the races. And they're like, "Hey, look at this! We're you know we're setting ROAS targets based upon grouped margins, right?" Um, so I think probably my article, and, and that's sometimes how I write. So uh, I, I think that that those who write. This, I like to give caveats on caveats if you haven't noticed, but like, <laughs> let me just note on writings. Cause I know some people are like to write. I think there's a level where like, I want to write well and I want to write truthfully. And I want to write with a well thought out argument in that if I wait until I have every single thing figured out on X, Y, Z, I'm never going to write an article. Right. And, and that's even some of why I've started trying to be more and more of like the ponderings guy, because I just think there's a healthy aspect to philosophy and just like thinking out loud that we are scared of in our industry because we don't want to be wrong. Um, and I think there's some level of like, hey, cool. Okay, I was wrong there. But also, like there are probably aspects of that, of thinking out loud to help move the industry forward and pondering. So so this is one of those where like it was just more of, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that and just, man, I'm, I, I just don't know if that's the best way to um, to segment by our shopping campaigns, specifically by product margin. And some of that, some of the, you know, reason the article, and you can go read the whole thing. I detail it way, way out, way more complex argument than this out there. But just some of the thoughts of like, if all you're doing is based on margin, then you might have like a $25,000 product and a $25 product that have the same margin. But like you, you're now, cause what you're doing in shopping is you're bidding you're basically bidding similarly on those. You're grouping those similarly. They have similar ad creatives, like all this stuff, right? And so just kind of an argument of, hey, instead, base your your custom labels and your, and your shopping a little bit more around actual historical data and conversion data because you might have a product that doesn't have a great margin, but is actually like the gateway product that, you know, a lot of your you know, your business sells on and that's great. So instead of, in, instead of, you know, making that product suffer with lower bids than that, because it doesn't happen to have a great margin, actually make, take action on sales data and, and present that product. Well, regardless of the margin, who cares about the margin? It's doing a great job of selling, do that. So I think that was kind of the big picture argument. Some people had some really great like thoughts on, Hey, you might be conflating margin and ROAS here. And I was like, crap. Yeah. I, I might've actually been in an unhealthy way. Um, so I, but but I think that was kind of the overall objective of what I was trying to do to to get us thinking a little bit more about that rather than just simply slapping a custom label based on product margin, slapping ourselves in the back and calling it good. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I I think it one of the really tricky things there's there's all of this actually at this point kind of cultural pressure to be data driven and um, you know. <laughs> Everything should be data this, data that, and it's actually hard to get this stuff right. Um, and and you might think you're doing yourself a big favor, and actually you're not. Depending on the on this out there, and it's hard because you know it depends. Not everybody's a data data scientist. Not everyone has data science resources available to them, um, and all kinds of advice just kind of proliferates out there. I I, I feel you totally with these these margin buckets and. I mean, to me, one of the problems there, it's it's a relative metric, um, and because it, it's just like you said, you could have this um, very high ticket item and very low ticket item, and they've got the same relative margin as each other, which is totally misleading as a basis to to bid on. Um, what you actually want to try to capture is the the volume there. Just you want to capture like profitable volume. So, mm-hmm. you know that that the the how, how should I say this? If you combine the idea of profitability and volume, it's not margin; it's it's profit. It's profit dollars or euros or pounds. 
<clears throat> and that would be probably a better way to optimize in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where if I could change anything about the post, I think I would have made it try to make it more clear. Hey, I think and again, some of this just comes from sometimes I write like I talk. I just am I'm processing while I do that. And that's not always helpful to listeners or readers. Um, but the benefit of that, sometimes you can see the way someone's thinking in the argument. And I think I think that presenting it more like a, hey, probably my biggest issue with margin, one of the things is like it's making a a precursor dis- decision to bidding or or like or segmenting that's not really based on any evidence of like user behavior, right? And so I think that so even I even make an argument like even I think like product type segmentation is is actually a really valid way of segmenting campaigns. That's often because that that people get their product types from their menus, their menu nav, and that groups how their product categories, right? And those are those are the way they are for a reason. Um, like user behavior is different for buying a woolly parka, you know, to negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit down jacket than it is for Bermuda short swim shorts. Like those are different things and they're based on user behavior. So that that actually even still is based on user behavior or, you know, as you had mentioned, like profit bidding or even, even overall revenue bidding, that's based on user behavior, actual user sales behavior. That sort of thing, I agree, is a is kind of a different thinking through how do you organize and how do you segment your campaigns? How do you bid your campaigns? How do you, as we have Performance Max and Smart Shopping, where there's also creative, how do I think more and more about how my ad creative goes into those different types of user behaviors? That's a very different thing than just like looking at something internal you have that really isn't user behavior based at all, which to me is margin and starting from there in a very simplistic way of organizing your shopping campaign. So I think I, I think like that's more of what I was getting at. Um, that wasn't totally clear in the argument. And again, some people point out in the comments that was that was great and helpful for me. So yeah, well, I mean, first off, I love the idea of just kind of thinking out loud because this is <laughs> thrown way back. But back when I was in college, I used to have to write so many papers and everything. You know, <laughs> there's got to be the thesis statement, and then every paragraph needs mm-hmm. to support toward and build toward the thesis statement. And so, and I was like so done with writing theses by the end. So, I just sometimes you just want to think out loud a little bit or write write out loud, so to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, that being said, probably I should shoot for thesis statements a little more again, <laughs> like you said. I, I it's funny. I feel like I also got burned out a little bit on that, but I do have to admit that I, I actually do understand the idea of here's what this article is about, and then let oh. me go and kind of communicate on it. And and so I, I think there's probably a health there as well. So a, a balance maybe of the two. <laughs> I, I I think you strike a, a fine balance, um, but but yeah, in, interesting stuff in that article. You talk about like this clicked versus bots um, dilemma in there as well, and which is reflected with like those order openers that you know you need to love those products too, um, and they might not get recognized for what they are if you're if you're looking at them in the wrong way. And a lot of great a lot of great points in there, but you already so in one of your last sentences there, you had mentioned. The phrase performance max. Um, and I've done a couple episodes on here about performance max. I talked recently with Jenny Marvin about uh, performance max, among other things as well. So I don't want this to turn into the performance max podcast. That's, that's not what I want. I mean, wh- while I've got you here, I just love to hear what are you thinking about the about this new campaign type so far? Because it, it is for someone like yourself who um, has been deep into shopping and search for many years now. Um, it does represent something a little different, even even more so than smart shopping in the past. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's an extension of that strategy, but it, even more so. Do you do you want to? Is there anything you want to say there, or should I or should I make the question a little more pointed I, in any direction? Or <laughs> no, nah, that's great. I I have thoughts, and then you can make okay, the okay. question pointed after <laughs> my thoughts if you want. So I do not. I don't yet have an opinion formulated on performance max to be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, and this, so let me, let me also somewhat in talking about performance max, I also want to broaden to, to include in this very purposefully include just the concept of like Google automation and where the direction of Google ads, if you will, 
Performance Max really, to me, is like the direction of Google Ads. This is what they want to do. It's very Facebook-like in terms of just being fairly automated. A lot of things are, are shoved together. Google controlling the vast majority of that, right? Um, and so like I'm I'm of I'm of a couple of minds. Like I have I have two competing minds within me on this sort of thing. And performance max is like, is it, right? And that is that um, like on one hand, I really do understand and appreciate the arguments for automation intelligence and growth over the last few years. Like we've seen it. Um you know, I've, I've done this a lot, but like I'd shout out Patrick Gilbert's book, Join or Die, which really does a great job of kind of talking through how automation works and and kind of making a case for admitting that the Google machines are better than us, us and that sort of thing. What what data they have access to, what data they're utilizing as signals that we don't even have as, you know, all, all of that stuff, right? So on one hand, I look at something like this and I say, like to me, the, the idea of a, a multi-channeled campaign type, which is what smart shopping was. And then as you said, it's been expanded even more, especially by like layering on DSA into this into performance max. The idea of a multi-channel campaign type does at some level make sense to me. So let's say that you have a, a user that you you know have interacted with in Google SERPs through your shopping, your standard shopping campaign. CPCs have been rising over the years. So you're paying like a buck 20 every time this person like clicks around and like it, they, they open up like seven of your product tabs with shopping and you know, they're, they're charging you a lot because they're doing, they're doing comparison shopping. A lot of people don't know, like Google, Google shopping is a CSE. I referenced that to someone in e-commerce and they looked at me blankly and I, and I realized like, oh my goodness, that, that must be an outdated re- frame, you know, reference that's comparison shopping engine. That's kind of what Google Shopping and some of these others were next tag price grabber back in the day, right? And so what what they're doing is they're they're comparing these products, but especially as CPCs have risen, like you're paying a lot of money for this person who is who is fairly targeted, right? But but you are paying a lot of money for them. Part of the draw to me of something like a multi-channel thing is that Google's automation is looking at this person and they're kind of like, hey, because of the data that we have on this person. And, and, and like start going down the rabbit hole of, of looking at what that data is, because Google does actually spell out quite a bit of like in their dynamic prospect. They, so dynamic remarketing is an aspect of smart shopping and performance max. Dynamic prospecting is a lot of people don't know a lot about dynamic prospecting. But if you start reading into it and they have policy docs on this stuff, it's basically like they're taking a lot of data signals that they have access to. It's even like things like past search history. And they're saying this person will probably like this specific product on your website, if they have enough information on that. And so they're showing them specific products based upon a lot of like that person's history that Google has that data. Again, like that's just not something I can do. Right. And the the crazy thing is that that ad now that they're showing that dynamic prospect or dynamic remarketing ad that is in a, you know, YouTube or display placement, that's going to cost you like 12 cents as opposed to let's say a buck, a buck 21. Right. And so this idea being, Again, this is me thinking the ideal, right? So I look at that and I'm like, a lot of that makes sense. I, I'd love if Google knows that that person will convert through my Google Display ad for 12 cents instead of me having to get in front of them again in Google SERPs for a buck 21. I'm all about that. I think there might have been some of that more and more happening with smart shopping in, in a healthy way. And I think that's part of why they were always able to do. You know, they were always able to do fairly well with with uh, traffic and ROAS with return on ad spend targets and meeting those. Um, although a lot of people had concerns, I think wisely so, about how much of that was bottom funnel remarketing as well. But all that to say, um, I so that's my one mind is like I see that and I'm like, I, I kind of like this concept and I think there's a lot there. Here's the the other mind of me is like like five years, seven years ago when you could get fairly fairly targeted in the specific channels that you were you know advertising google ads like channels are channels for a reason a user in google search who who wants that specific lego star wars millennium falcon set and types that in man there's a, there's a lot around that individual and them specifically asking for that information that is is in 
as as a person, as a target audience, they are very focused on that and communicating to you what they're focused on in search. And that's that's very different than them reading some on some website, reading some article about Kim Kardashian and seeing some ad. And that and that's okay, but like those are two different, very different people. They're they're there for two different very different things. And what I've found is that as you start to mash all those channels together and you're limited on the different ad creative you can show to those those two people again it might even be the same person but they're in they're in a different mindset that's also part of it right it's the same person but if they're actively searching and interested as opposed to trying to ignore while they're reading about this updated pop celebrity news um, you're going to need different ad creative. And we marketers know that like that's, that's a different purpose. And, and increasingly Google's not allowing us to do that. Um, and so that's where I just look at that. And like, on one hand, I appreciate the automation. I appreciate the, the lower CPCs and that sort of thing with these, with channels like performance max, it's all lumped together. On the other hand, I look at that and I say, I actually think Google is killing our ability to do great marketing because of that. Um, and so, and, and like, so again, let me be very clear. Like, that's not me saying that as a, Oh, I wish for the old days where I could adjust manual CPCs on everything. No, I'm not saying that, but I am saying, I think that they're, they're actually, they're actually harming marketing as a whole. And I think, I really think that's going to be negative long-term for the industry. And, and my impression of performance max, and then I'll shut up my performance of, of uh, my impression of performance max so far, as I've interacted like we have about 900 people in my Facebook private Google shopping group. And like we just interact, talk about Google shopping. I've seen stuff online. I have seen a lot of people who are just to my memory, not like anti-smart shopping that have just been really frustrated by performance max. Some of that is I th- I do think we were sold a little bill of goods to be quite frank here with Hey, smart shopping. Here's the one-click migration. Blah blah blah. Push this over, and like over and over again, I have heard, with some exceptions, that like when you migrate smart shopping to Performance Max, it there are different things happening. There are different results. It is not the same thing going on, and that's been very frustrating to advertisers. And so I, I just I just think there's a lot for us philosophically to consider about what's going on, but just practically, I've been. Honestly, a little surprised at overall a lot of the negative reception I've seen for Performance Max because Google primed the way with smart shopping. There was a lot of negativity going from standard to smart shopping. And like in some ways, like smart shopping really had gotten just a lot of people on its side and acceptance and like they'd done the thing. And I think they took a few steps back forcing a Performance Max. So big picture there. <laughs> Whew. Cut off your chest. Though, right? I, I, I told you I had thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, thanks, thanks for sharing all that. Boy, there, there's there's a lot to to unpack there. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I think that really smart shopping really did kind of it it won hearts and minds with time. <laughs> uh, it really did because did. people <laughs> did not like smart shopping when when that came yep. out, and. Um, but you know, in the end, it, it did what it basically said it was going to do, and it performed pretty well. Um, and then now with Performance Max, I think people were approaching it with a, a little more—I don't know what to say—a little more humility or open-mindedness, or whatever. And, mm-hmm. Hey, let's just yep. let's give this thing a chance. And um, yeah, it, it hasn't been hasn't been perfect. And this—you were mentioning this question about how incremental is the traffic that there was a question about that in terms of, you know, is it just bottom funnel remarketing, propping this thing up? And then with these brand search topics that are, you know, that problem remains in performance max. And then this brand search mm-hmm. topic possibly deepens that problem, you could argue. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's also, it's very, it's very early. It just feels like they have, um, I think that the technology is going to improve. I think it's improving constantly. Um, but then, then there's criticism. Hey, you're making like we're you're learning on our advertising dime. Um, you know, you're fixing this mm-hmm. product while we're paying for it, or so on. So, I mean, I definitely understand the criticisms out there. Which, which if I can note, Mike, mm-hmm. look quick on that point, like 
I, I don't, I don't really mind that if I've kind of opted into and agreed to that. I think part of the issue right now is like, I don't know how to put it. There is a literal gun to the head of, of, of everyone out there running smart shopping. And, and I think that was the mistake. Um, I, I know that they wanted to move people. I know they probably have some engineer duplicacies happening and stuff. On the other hand, you're freaking Google. You know, I think, I think like last year it was like 260 billion or something like that. So like maybe a couple of engineers duplicating stuff is okay for like, you know, keeping things a little bit, but, but all that to say, like, you know, agree with what you're saying about the learning period. But to me, that's more of a, a, a true relationship and partnership. And I've, I've always said this about Google. This, this, they communicate over and over what they actually think. They do not think they're partnered with the people who are literally handing them the $250 billion that Google's worth, that Alphabet's worth. Like, that is, like, they don't have $250 billion. That's given to them by advertisers. But they, they just consistently don't see advertisers as their, like, valued partners. They see them, like, I've used the medicine thing before, but Google often to me acts like, like you know, Mary Poppins with the, uh, the, the, the spoonful of medicine, sugar medicine, where she's just always trying to, like, figure out how to get the children to eat their medicine. And that's always what it's felt like with Google. Not that like, hey, we're valued partners. Let's think through this together. But more like, this is best for you. So how do we do this? And if not, we'll just force you into it. And and like, if you're going to use our learnings, our money to learn, then that really needs to be an agreed upon two entities agreeing together thing, not a, you have to switch to this now and then we'll learn from that. So there, mini rant. Yeah, I mean, and that the gun to the head point, I mean, they're justifying this by saying that they want everything to be kind of up and running, smooth sailing um, in time for peak holiday season. And yeah, um, which, they could wait a year. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, I can wait till 2023. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the, the fourth quarter is not only the biggest quarter for the advertisers, it's also the biggest quarter for Google themselves. So mm-hmm. um, something to think about there. Uh, but yep. yeah, <clears throat> well, um, Boy, I mean, we could we could probably keep going here on Performance Max, but um, I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us on that so far. Um, I've already done, you know, check out the other Performance Max episodes. Check out the interview with Jenny. Check out, I interviewed, um, you mentioned uh, Patrick Gilbert and his book, Join or Die. I interviewed him on this podcast before as well. So I think there's, there's a lot of uh, information out there about that right yep. now. Um, but although there's one thing, so we were just talking about this on, on Twitter um, last week. And by the time this episode airs, I guess it'll be like a couple weeks ago, but there was this new automated title optimization thing from, from, from Google. Um, and it reminds me of just something that's kind of always to me in the background here. Um, so to summarize this real quick, uh, basically, Google has a new feature capability where you know you've got your titles the way that they are um, in your feed. They'll see a query that comes in, and let's say that query has like a brand term in it or a size or some attribute like this. They'll find that relevant attribute from the query, um, and they're gonna front load it right at the front of your title. Um, and I think they use an example of mattresses. So, you know, if the person search for a king size mattress, then, you know, king is going to be at the front. And if there was a brand in there, then the brand is going to be at the front. Um, but the kind of the problem seems to be that it's running the same transformation on, in principle, everyone's titles. And there's only so much space, especially if you're on mobile. Um, you know, there's only so many characters of any given title that or even visible in the first place. So it just like, to me, it makes these titles more similar to each other, less differentiated, which is not necessarily good for the advertiser. It's also not necessarily good for the user, uh, the consumer, because how do they choose which one to click on at that point? Um, and, and I just, I feel like every capability that Google gives you, you have to remember, they give the same capability to everyone else and it's always to me like a tricky thing in here i mean how do you do you do you see that the automation is making things more what's the word comparable or more yeah i don't know i don't know how to describe it 
But yeah, I mean, so I think this gets into a bigger just philosophical thing of like what is Google's role? Mm. And and I actually think more and more like at least in the US, I know the EU has been like focused on this for years, right? Um it it really is starting to hit the US as well. And that is like like what <laughs> What is Google's role, right? Is it is it to provide a platform for advertisers to show ads on? Or is it, as they very clearly think, to run and control everything? But then that has a lot of messy ramifications, like you pointed out. And, and this title, Optimization Test, is literally just, to me, part of that bigger question, which already shows itself in a lot of ways based on you know, how they do everything. So I wrote, I wrote an article back in 2020 about when when like the third party cookie they first announced like when everyone started first announcing like hey the third party cookie is going to die and like there's an element where google google controls in every way like they they not only control the ad placements they control the auction they control what you're bidding they control what the other person next to you is bidding by the way who who gets the money from that bidding they do right um they control more and more like what those ads look like they control like what your title looks like in the shopping ads they control all that stuff and again more and more like what is that and what should that look like? And I think that's going to be a huge part of what the next decade in PPC is going to look like involving, you know, government legislation. Because at some point, you know, what you asked about the Google title optimization is is to me a really good insight into the complexity of this. Because, you know, like you said, okay, so um, let's say someone wants just a, a really great um, uh, drill, like, you know, you said your, your house is being built right now. And so we got like an electric drill, right? Someone wants the best electric drill. So they type in best electric drill into Google and up pops, you know, the first five or six Google shopping things and Google's optimizing these titles. So, you know, six of those say best electric drill is the first things. Well, first of all, exactly like you said, that that's all of a sudden completely eliminated any uniqueness between these. It's actually not helpful for the consumer. And again, like is Google's role. So like, does that mean, and I don't know, like, are they going to have some variation? So are they going to apply that equally to every single person in that auction? Well, if not, then how are they, then like, what's going to determine that they don't optimize your title to make it better clicked on your bid. (laughs) So, so are, are we back to a reality where highest bidder, you know, that's, Part of why Google originally introduced quality score to get away from an, a, an, an industry, a culture where the people with the deepest pockets won. That That's great. It's almost like with more automation, we are just hurtling back towards the people with the biggest pockets win. Now throw in privacy stuff where only the people with the biggest pockets also have like the best access to data. And 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 I just I just feel like we we really are hurtling towards this automated privacy-minded future, which if you've heard our my latest episode, I'm all about digital privacy. I'm I'm against companies using digital privacy in order to make their own walled gardens higher at the expense of of small businesses when like that that XYZ thing wasn't actually harmful to a user's privacy. And I think that's what's happening. I think we're hurtling towards a realm in PPC where the deep pockets win because data wins and you know, with automation, the person who spends the most wins. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I just have major concerns with what Google's role is, how they see their role, how that's different than a lot of us see their role. But like at this point, no one's stopping them. So, yeah, again, great, great points there. And I just want to ask, do you have a hard stop at the hour, by the way? <laughs> I, I I don't. Okay. As long as people don't mind listening to a long episode. <laughs> I think people will be uh, will be happy to hear your, your more of your thoughts, Kirk. Yeah, I just, I mean, I I, I wrote about this a couple of years ago now, um, where yeah, you do in this end up in this position where it's like, how does Google themselves even really differentiate between different bidders, or how do they how do they solve this whole bidding thing at the ecosystem level? Um, becomes really complicated, and. You know, you see, they really, yeah. So if they're optimizing titles, um, they're, you know, they can, let's say, choose uh, which images are the best ones and so on, which assets to use that you get into um, these dynamic pricing or automated discounting pilots that they have. And then they're even controlling the, the price that's going to be displayed 
uh, on the SERP, for example. And, you know, they, they've covered basically all the main things, all the components of these ads. Uh, they're pulling all the levers. They've got the bid, all the all these little individual pieces. And then what do you do? I guess my concern is that it could become a bit like I would compare. I think I compared it back then, like a hamster and their little drip feed where you just you get what you get out of the bottle. The Google is just pacing it to you um, and you're happy with what you got. And that's, that's if it's done in the most in kind of a democratic sort of a way or a socialistic sort of a way where they're trying to meter this stuff out evenly to people or, yeah, the biggest budgets win. Um, so these are real, I would just say technological hurdles with the approach that they're, that they're uh, pursuing. And I mean, go back and hear Google's side of, of the story, listen to Jenny Marvin. Um, yeah, I, I think in a nutshell, we like Google is, um, is pushing toward more like value-based bidding and value rules. And this is an area that's become important for them. And I do think that that's an area where right now there's room to, to kind of differentiate is to basically help Google understand what stuff is worth to you better than, than others do. There are, you know, limitations to some of the tools that they have in place there. Uh, I think you've written about that too, like the new customer acquisition rules, for example. But yeah, it's, it is concerning. Also, this first party data thing where, like, like you said, the biggest advertisers, they're going to have the best first party collection systems they're going to have the most the largest volume of first party data and they're going to be able to offer then the best starting signals to google so it is it is a little bit concerning right now that's why i think you know we have to work really hard to differentiate what we're doing in the channel at this point and and let me let me tack on there so it's funny because i my my goal online is that people never know if i'm like pro google or anti google <laughs> and i think that's kind of like that's where i want to be like i i want to call out good things that they're doing when they're doing mm -hmm. it and ways that automation actually is good and helpful. And then I want to call out when I'm like, no, I think that's bad behavior and it's harmful to the industry. And here's here's an area we've kind of been talking about this. And I think this kind of continues circles back to this. And that is that like, if you, if Google, if you truly saw us, your advertisers, your, your brand, like the people paying you, if you truly saw us as your partners, like as we had questions on these, because we all do, the way you would communicate to us and help walk us through it would be drastically different than it has been. Mm -hmm. And here's where I'll call out a really big positive. Like Ginny Marvin is doing a fantastic job. And I think that's because she comes from outside of the industry. And now like, and, and like, I don't know this. All right. But like my, like I have, I would place some good money on the fact that like, she is working pretty hard internally to be like, okay, that's, that's fine. But like, how do I communicate this to them? Well, um, because I think she's been on that other side. And, and so like, I'm actually not including and like full transparency, like she's my friend. I knew her before, like she was in Google and that. So like, I'm not really saying specifically on her. I'm just saying like Google as a, as an organization, when we have these questions, the way that we are responded to is almost like this condescending, like we don't, you don't need to know this sort of thing. And I, I just reject that as a, as a healthy way to respond to a partner. Like the reason why a lot of us don't know what's happening and we, and we do, and maybe you're right. Maybe we have faulty views of how like privacy is working in the things like search query data and things like that. But like, that's because we don't know. And like, we just need some answers. Um, we need to understand this sort this stuff better. Like we're your source of revenue. So like, I would say, start changing the way you're viewing that Google so that, that then as we have these questions and how this stuff works together, it's less of a, well, that's just the way the engineering team wants it or whatever it is. And, and, it, and it is more of an actual trying to help us understand how is this, like, how is that calculated? How is this, like, how do they determine which titles and that? Because we're also, we are also in, the, in that way, a healthy source of, what's the word? Uh, ac accountability. Because like the more, the more black box everything gets, the higher the possibility without any external accountability, the higher possibility that some sort of fraud or bad behavior or something is happening, as opposed to just, this is how this works. Here's how we think through titles. Here's how we think through how to determine what keywords show up in those titles. And there's just more transparency in like the inner workings of, of that system stuff. I think that's really important. And we just don't get that. I think they've made 
kind of a big stride having having Jenny there facilitating two way communication. Um, and if they would have a hundred Jennies, then things could be a lot better. Um, transparency is so important. I also like, you know, I know they're doing a lot of these kind of they're doing surveys, they're grabbing quantitative data and about what people think, but I don't really have the feeling like they're really reaching out to someone like yourself, for example, like as, as a stakeholder or see what the, what your perspective, like what, what the perspective of somebody who has opinions and knows this, the, the possible ramifications of this, and I don't really feel that it just feels very prescriptive. Like you've said, like, like here's your medicine. You should take this. We know best. Um, and that's frustrating because I think that there's a lot that they, that they could learn, but you know, you could argue that the vast majority of the budget flowing through Google, these people don't care maybe, or they don't know better. I'm not sure about that. And they, they might just be playing a big numbers game, but I also think when you look at the the biggest budgets too, those those people tend to be more advanced um, and and tend to have more concerns too. Um, and I don't want to patronize small and medium businesses out there and say that they're not advanced. Um, but you know, I think that there probably are there probably is a, a healthy or a large part of the market that's kind of happy to click click play, so to say. But mm-hmm. um, it just and, feels and- like there's a mischance on both sides here. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing also, like, so when you're, when you're developing something, when you're like engineering a product, so you're starting to think through performance max, if you, if you start taking the time to, yeah, you survey a bunch of people, you have product training things, you want to get insight into how this works, stuff like that. Well, gosh, that would slow down innovation, (laughs) right? Like sometimes that's actually really good. You know, sometimes I've I've had this conversation before once with someone, it was in a different context, but they said, man, you know, you have these policies here and that, that really slows this down. And it was like, sometimes that is, that is the specific actual point of policies that that's a lot of times how government works. That's something I've, I've come to learn a little bit more where I was like, gosh, that's, it's actually kind of a good thing. Like government is slow and, and like, there's a, there's a negative to that. And then the positive side of that is you kind of don't want these decisions that can just impact so many things. And it, and it really creates a lot of chaos just happening at a whim, right? Mm. Just you people in a, you know, a few engineers sitting in a, in a boardroom, all of a sudden are changing like this for lots of people. So there actually might be an important aspect to that where, and I don't know, so this is very speculative, but Maybe there still is a, an element where Google is still in like 2010 Google mindset. And maybe some of this just needs to be that they start shifting into realizing like, look, let's look around and like we, you know, we do control whatever it is at this point, 85% of the search market share. Like, let's really focus now. Like, like a lot of what they've done has kind of set in stone as like good ways they think about the product, their search product, YouTube, that sort of thing. Now, as they're moving more into incremental innovation, maybe now is the time to get out for them to get out of startup mode and to start really thinking more in terms of like organization and management mode. I think part of what that would look like would be treating their brand advertisers as partners. And like, that means partnering a lot more in communication, partnering a lot more in, in product development, making sure that a lot of this stuff actually is thought well through. And uh, yeah, so I, I think there are some potential, a lot of big negatives in terms of accountability, uh, other things that maybe are still are coming in that regard because of them choosing not to go down that road. But what do I know? So... Um. Well, Kirk, I, I'm looking at the clock here. I'm, I want to ask you, let's, let's just end on a couple of uh, other notes here. Like what is next for you in digital marketing or which, which trends are you watching that you're, that you're excited about or any, um, any themes or strategies that you think are underhyped, overhyped? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked a my my head really is in the game right now of what we've talked about already, which is I'm just I'm just really aware of how much the realm of privacy, government regulated privacy, all of that aspect really is going to impact things. And I just think that that's going to 
you know, regardless of Google choices, our choices, anything like that's going to change the game and change things up. Um, and so I'm just trying to keep my head in a thinking like, what would that look like? Like, how would that change things? What would that change things? I think iOS 14 with Facebook has given a bit of insight into at least part of how that can change things. And, you know, probably a key way for that would be with businesses like ad agencies and that just really understanding how do we really identify, you know, who our target audience is, where are they at different points in the funnel? Because I actually, I've even written on this, I actually still think the concept of the funnel fits. Um, I still do think that people are generally in different stages of their their purchase process and their minds and their in their emotions. And so still kind of thinking through and then building ad creative and figuring out those channels and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so I still think there's just a lot of that. I, I think that we, as a, the digital market industry have focused really heavily into like these buzzwordy stuff, like the data driven and attribution. And that's really focused on us doing these really technically overly produced digital type optimizations within individual channels. And, and I, and I do think more of pulling back and, and brands, especially, probably having someone in-house, even if they're utilizing agencies to really be the guide, the guiding star of this is who we are, this is our target audience, and like making sure in every way that is communicated and thought of is, is going to be really crucial as in some ways data starts to go away, both both autom- both because of automation and privacy. And no, those two are not always the same thing. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that's part of it. And then similarly to that, so that's kind of big picture industry-wide, but similarly, like I would just, again, kind of in some ways thinking e-commerce here, I just think that what I see online is I, I would at least just call e-commerce brand owners and to just ponder the idea of like obsessive growth at all costs. It, 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 is that really the best way? Right. Is, is that, is that really what you have to do? And let me not even say, yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to say like, that's bad, whatever. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask you to consider what you're trying to do, especially as we head into an, an you know, an economic um, difficult season. I, I hate to use the word recession, but because I've been more, because like, that's not my place to call it that or not right now. But as we head into that, it might be worth focusing less on what your growth goals are. And more like more on spending your time with your team, just really nailing down the different aspects of your product. Like what, how can we improve this? Like what really makes this thing awesome? Like how will this product actually develop like fans? And I don't mean just like people who buy it. I don't just mean customers. I mean, like what will make this product be something that people actually, even in a recession would say, you got to buy this. And they tell their friends, you got to buy this. Right. And then who are those people? Like what sort of like everything you can know about them, what sort of things get them excited, get them interested in purchasing, where are they spending their time at those different stages of the funnel and just really obsessing over more to me, more of that rather than having these like random arbitrary, like growth goals and doing whatever it takes to hit them. Cause I actually think that path is probably going to have you a little more stable moving forward. So on the other hand, I will also say with humility, I have never grow, built an e-commerce business. So also, <laughs> if you reject that advice, totally, totally your call. <laughs> I'm not offended. I, I'm not an e-commerce founder either. I, I, I would say it's the right advice and it's just way easier said than done. You know, I think that's what it comes <laughs> down to. <clears throat> yeah, a lot going on there. I mean, speaking from this, this tension with, yeah, these... This whole thing about privacy versus competition is, is so fascinating. We see this in the EU and, and maybe it's coming up in the US bit by bit too. But where these two things really, it's wrong to say that they're in contradiction with each other, but they're in tension with each other where, you know, like in order to be as privacy compliant as possible, then Google kind of needs to become a walled garden or Facebook or Apple. Um, but then that's anti-competitive to be a walled garden. Um, and and so it's it's this paradox, okay. I, I, and so this is going to be a super interesting theme. I agree, um, and we have to be careful here because if this is not handled correctly, and if these guys don't play nice, then you're going to start seeing like 
I think we were tweeting about this once a, a while back with Flock or something, but you'll see the internet starting to get fragmented or something into these different browser landscapes and, and with real, mm-hmm. real implications of that. But uh, oh, what else have you said? <laughs> oh, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> to, I mean, just just great thoughts. I don't know. I don't need to respond to everything you said. It was really awesome. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to you so far. And on that note, maybe we should wrap it up. Where, like, is there any anything you want to shout out? Any people, companies, projects? I, I think you've always got a lot of projects we're going on. Where can we find you online? Yeah, you can find uh, Zato at ZatoMarketing.com. Um, like I said before, we we focus on Google Ads and Microsoft Ads for businesses. Typically, like our ideal client is going to be e-commerce focused between, let's say, spending between twenty five and one hundred and fifty thousand a month in spend. That's that's kind of what's worked well for us. We do have a small budget program for those underneath that. Um, typically, if they start getting real large. And as you know, a lot depends on the size of accounts and complexity and what's going on there and, and what they need. But typically, if, if you know, we've I've just started telling businesses this as they start getting really, really huge, like we might not be a great fit for it again because kind of the focus of what what we're doing and what we're capable of doing. I'm just not ready to run out and hire someone just because we get a new client. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that's that's been a thing for us. Zatomarketing.com. I'm PPC Kirk online, pretty much everywhere, um, all the social channels. Uh, and then I'd, I'd point you to um, our our new podcast that we started, um, I guess last year, but PBC Ponderings. And what we do, and Mike, you've been on this, like we try to have these like core episodes where we're like, I kind of think through and build a narration that we we interview people and kind of work this together into more of like a, I don't know, investigative journalism type thing. But then we release those interview episodes, which I think are like just completely chock full of information as well as like bonus episodes. So yeah, I love that. love to have you check those out as well. So yeah, yeah, definitely. There's great themes covered there, like supply chain, um, privacy topics, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. We, we had a chat about attribution and there were some, you had some great interviewees about attribution. So really, really cool themes that you're covering there. Um, so thanks again, Kirk, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Growing E-Commerce. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce. To learn more, visit smarter-ecommerce.com. Mm-hmm.